Well, this morning, as we come to God's word, turn with me to the Gospel of John. Now, we're going to spend our time this morning in chapter 1 of John's Gospel. Now, for the last few years, we have worked through John chapters 3 through 6. And since we've not worked through the first two chapters, thought it would be a good idea. So that's where we are going to start today. Specifically, we're going to be looking at the first 18 verses of John chapter 1. Now, this section of John, these opening verses to John's gospel, is known as the prologue. This is the prologue to John's gospel. And in these 18 verses, John lays out the framework and the foundation for everything that he writes about in his gospel account. Now, that is why it is so important to our study of John. Now, my first year as I was working on my undergraduate degree, I I had a roommate in college, and uh, roommate's name was Ross, and Ross and I quickly became friends. When I met him, Ross claimed to be a Mormon, yet he wasn't, at the time, really a faithful one. He, he grew up that way, but since coming out of his, moving out of his parents' house, he wasn't really practicing. Now, over the course of that first year, we had a lot of conversations about religion, God, at that point in my life, he'd actually brought a lot of Mormons into my path, so I had a a decent understanding of what they believed and how it differed from Christianity. Now, it was probably the second semester of that first year, and Ross and I were riding around in his car as we were going somewhere around town. And as we approached the dorm building, Ross looked at me and began, he expressed gratitude to me for faithfully having conversations with him about God. He said they were challenging conversation. It is because of those conversations that he was convicted and decided that he needed to make some changes in his life. He needed to get serious about God. He needed to go back to the Mormon church. Now, I have to tell you, in that moment, I was honestly dumbfounded. I remember being shocked. That was a hard moment for me because I felt like somehow my conversations with him had drove him back to Mormonism, which is obviously not what I was trying to do, nor what my heart desired for him. But that raises an important question for us this morning as we approach this text. And that question is, does it really matter? Does it really matter what we believe about Jesus as long as we believe in Jesus? A Barna research poll from a few years ago found the following results regarding people's belief in Jesus in the United States. So more than 9 out of 10 adults say that Jesus was an actual person who really lived. 56% of adults believe Jesus is God. 26% believe he was only a religious or spiritual leader. And 18% aren't sure whether Jesus was divine. And they found that the younger the generation, the less likely that they would believe that Jesus is God. Now, 52% of adults believe that Jesus was human and committed sins like other people. 46% believe that Jesus was human, did not commit sins, and 2% were unsure. And then on top of all that, 62% of all adults surveyed say they had made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ that is still important in their life today. That means that among those who say they made a personal commitment to Christ, there is a mixture of belief in who Jesus actually is. So once again, I pose the question, does it 
matter. And with that in mind, let us now read John's prologue. We're going to read John chapter 1, and we read verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law given through Moses, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So as we come and we look at the text this morning, the big takeaway I want to get from this is that since Jesus is God and man, we must integrate our faith with every area of our lives. Since Jesus is God and man, we must integrate our faith with every area of our lives. Now, to be clear, there's so much packed into these first 18 verses of John's gospel, there's no way for us to deal with all of it fully. However, we want to understand how these verses in John's prologue fit into his overall purpose for this gospel. By way of reminder, John wrote at the end of the gospel in John 20, 31, he said, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wants his gospel account of the life of Christ from the very outset to be laid on the unshakable foundation of the nature of Christ and his relationship to God. Now before we dive in, I need to make the statement that the word in John's prologue is Jesus. I don't feel I need to spend a lot of time supporting that claim. As you read through the first 18 verses, and as we read through the first chapter of John, it is absolutely without a doubt that John is saying that Jesus is the word, or the word is Jesus. And I want to make that statement on the front end, because I'm going to use those two names interchangeably throughout the sermon, and I don't want you to be confused that whether I say the word or I say Jesus, I am speaking about the same person. Because in the mind of John, as he's writing his gospel, they are the same person. So as we dive in, I'm going to read, let's look at verses 1 and 2 once again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And as we look at the first phrase in verse 1, he starts off by saying, In the beginning was the Word. 
Now, the opening to John's gospel should sound very familiar to us. John opens his gospel the same as the opening words of the Bible itself. In Genesis 1-1, we read, In the beginning. Now, this is no accident on the part of the apostle. In laying the foundation of his gospel, he takes the reader, he takes us this morning back to the very beginning pages of Scripture. He takes us back before time itself, back before creation, back before there was anything material. He takes us back to eternity past where the only thing in existence was God. And in this place before time, John writes, in the beginning was the word. Now the way that John constructs this phrase in the Greek, with the use of this verb, to understand it emphasizes existence. What does that mean for us? What John is not saying is that the word came into existence in the beginning, but that rather that the word was already in existence in the beginning. It means that we could word this phrase, in the beginning, the word was already in existence. John is emphasizing the pre-existence of the word. He is clearly communicating that before creation, the word was. Now, if we were reading that for the first time, it, might, it should raise some questions in our minds. First of all, what is meant by the word? What, like, why does he use that phrase, the word? Well, the Greek word that John uses is logos, and this Greek word had a wide range, a wide range of meaning culturally at that time. In secular culture, the Stoics used that term to describe the impersonal, rational principle by which everything exists and is the essence of the rational human soul. To the Jewish philosopher Philo, the logos was the ideal man which all human, from which all human beings derive. Now, neither of these uses, however, involved a distinct personality. And more generally, they even used logos to refer to the inner thought of a person, or they could even use it for the outward expression of a person, such as speech or message. So then in this wide range of meanings, what does the Apostle John mean when he uses this term logos? Well, something we need to understand when we read the New Testament is that the writers would often take a word, they'd try to find a word that could describe what they were trying to describe, and they would use a word that meant something particular to their culture, but they would use it in a new way, thereby bringing new life into the word for the Christian. And that is what John does here with this term logos. He takes an idea that the culture would have been familiar with, and he breathes new life into it by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, since John is making a clear reference to the Old Testament here, right at the beginning of his gospel, it would be helpful for us to understand what the Old Testament use of this phrase means, the word of God. How, how is that used by Scripture in the Old Testament? Well, in the Old Testament, the Word of God is clearly connected to three things. The Word of God is connected with God's powerful activity, first of all, in creation. I think we can see that in Genesis, in the opening pages of Genesis. God said, and he brought into existence the Word of God connected with his creative power. But it's also connected with his revelation. And we see this throughout the Old Testament as well. For example, at the beginning of Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 1 4, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to me. And then he speaks. 
but it's the word of the Lord. It's this revelation that comes to Jeremiah. It's also connected with deliverance or salvation. For example, in Psalm 107, 20, he says, and he sent out his word and healed them. In the Old Testament, the word of God is his powerful self-expression in creation, revelation, and deliverance. And it is that connection that John makes in his opening phrase. He's connecting the word with this powerful self-expression of God, which existed before creation itself. In other words, in the beginning, the word or Jesus, the self-expression of God already existed. This raises more questions, however. If the word already existed before creation, what is the relationship between God and the word? Now, we have to remember the cultures into which this was written. Outside of Judaism, there were a multitude of gods. Inside Judaism, they saw only the oneness of God, as God had made very clear in the Old Testament, for example, in the Shema of Deuteronomy 6. And from either of those contexts, as they would have read these opening phrases in John's gospel, they would have had that question, wait a second, what is, if, if the word was already in existence, what's the relationship between God and the word? And John, he answers that question with two statements. First, he says the word was with God. Or another way he says the word was by God. Either way you translate this phrase, what it sets up is a distinction within God. He says that there was a distinction within God. But if, if the word was with God then, and if there's a distinction within God, what is the nature of this pre-existent word? What is the nature of Jesus? Now, this question is one that's been debated since the early days of the church. For the first several hundred years of church history, the church as a whole did not initially have concise, generally agreed upon statements of distinctives of the Christian faith. But as time went by, however, there arose several different heresies that made it important for orthodox doctrine to be defined so that the church as a whole could clearly see that which was true and that which was false. This is just as when Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, he said, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men, speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And that is exactly what happened during the course of the early church. Damnable heresies began to arise. Now these initial heresies in the 3rd and 4th century all centered around one issue, and that issue was, how do we understand the nature of Jesus? How do we understand Jesus' relationship to the Father? How, do we, how, do, how can we understand the very essence or being of who Christ, the preexistent Word, is? Now, the heresy that led to a formal debate of this question at that time was that of Arianism. And Arianism was championed by a name, man named Arius. And Arius wanted to emphasize the otherness of God in relation to his creation. So in Arius' mind, Jesus had to be a created being. Otherwise, God was not clearly separated from his creation. And he had a catchphrase that he used for his position that became wi 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 widely known at that time. And it was, there was when he was not. 
That's what he would say there was when he was not. <clears throat> Arianism began to grow in popularity within the Roman Empire, and the churches understood this need to be addressed. And this all culminated in the Council of Nicaea in 325, where bishops from all over the Roman Empire gathered to settle this very issue. Now, there was a man at this council by the name of Athanasius. He was not a bishop, but he was with the bishop of Alexandria, and Athanasius understood the truth about Jesus. And just to be clear, yours and my understanding of the Godhead of the Trinity, of Jesus' essence or being, is largely due to this man. He was central to what came out of the council, which is the Nicene Creed, which lays out the bounds of Christian orthodoxy in our, orthodoxy in our understanding of Christ. So what did they agree upon? What did the Council of Nicaea agree upon? Well, they correctly understood what John says next. What John says next in answer to this question on the nature of the preexistent word. John says that the preexistent word that was with God was God. Now, what does he mean when he says that? To be clear, there are some, like Jehovah's Witnesses, who incorrectly translate this phrase, and the word was a God. They misunderstand John's construction of his sentence in the Greek. In the way he constructs it, he is pointing to the quality of the word. That means when he says that the word was God, he is saying that the word was divine. So if the word is divine, does that mean that the word is the same essence as the Father or just similar? The same substance or just similar substance? And this is the exact question that Athanasius fought for in Nicaea. Those who supported Arianism because they believed that Jesus was a created being could not say that Jesus was the same substance, essence, or being as the Father, but only similar. Yet Athanasius understood that if Jesus was not the same substance, the same essence, the same being as the Father, then he was not God. And if Jesus was not God, then the entire foundation of Christianity falls. Three years after the Council of Nicaea, then in the year 328, Athanasius became bishop of Alexandria. And he would serve as bishop for 45 years. Now, during that time, those 45 years, there were five different emperors, and they, they had all their own agendas when it came to religion in the Roman Empire. Some supported the Nicene Creed, and some supported Arianism. So over the course of his 45-year ministry, Athanasius was exiled five different times for a total of 16 years. That is one-third of his ministry not spent in the place where he was called and appointed to serve. And each of the times he was exiled, each and every time it was over this very issue. It was over the nature of the word, the nature of Christ, the relationship between Christ and the Father. He spent his entire life fighting for this truth. He never backed down. He never wavered. This is not ivory tower theology. This is not reserved for those in seminaries to argue over in theological journals, never really touching or penetrating the hearts and lives of ordinary Christians. This is truth that goes to the very core of the understanding of God himself. This is truth that is central to our understanding of the gospel. To be very clear, how you answer this question about the nature of Christ determines where you will spend eternity. 
You cannot get this question wrong and be a Christian. It is that central and that core to everything that we believe and live as Christians. Athanasius understood that. That is the very reason he was able to suffer so much for it. Your hope and my hope as believers here this morning hinges on the fact that Jesus, the pre-existent word, is God. God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. The distinction between the Father and the Son is not a distinction of being or essence, but is a distinction of role. All that the Father has and is is shared with the Son and the Spirit. There is a singular ontology or there is a singular being. Why is this so important? Because unlike what many people in our culture believe today, you cannot, you cannot have a Jesus of your choosing. You cannot fashion for yourself a Jesus that you are comfortable with. Jesus is not just a good teacher. He is not just a good moral or religious leader. Jesus is not just a great and humble example for us to follow. Jesus is not a created being. Listen, if you believe in a Jesus this morning that is any less than God himself, then you serve no Jesus at all. You serve a Jesus of your imagination. You serve a Jesus who cannot save you, who cannot redeem you. John wrote this in 1 John 2.23 when he wrote, No one who denies the Son has the Father. No one. Peter said it clearly in Acts 4.12. He says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. You either have the Jesus of Scripture, Jesus who is God, or you have no one at all. This is a key and essential truth. Yet John does not stop there. He doesn't just stop with a proclamation that the word, that Jesus is God. He then says in verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. Now this sounds like a repetition of what was just said, and in a sense that's precisely what it is. This is such an important truth that John wants to make sure it is understood. He wants to make sure that we understand that the pre-existent word who is God is the same one that was in the beginning with God. But John also repeats this truth to help transition to the next section of what he's going to communicate in verses 3 through 8. John has just laid out his claim. And now he goes to support that claim about the deity of the word by connecting the word to activities that can only be attributed to God himself. He does it in a general sense here at the beginning of his gospel, and then he spends the rest of this book, the entirety of the gospel of John, to show us how Jesus, the word, that everything he says and what he does are things that only God can do. And by doing this, John gives evidence, he gives support to his claim about the deity of Christ. So let's read then verses 3 through 8. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light. 
but came to bear witness about the light. So John then, if, as we look at the beginning of this, John goes right back to where he began in verse 1. And in that verse, he made a connection to the time of creation itself in Genesis 1.1. Now he returns to that moment where God brought all the universe into existence, and he shows us the actions of the word of God at that time. At the beginning, another way to translate this phrase is all things, in verse 3, all things were brought into existence through him, and not anything was made without him. Here John makes a connection with the Old Testament understanding of the word as his powerful self-expression in creation. In the first chapters of Genesis, it says that God said, and then things came into existence. Now John makes it clear that the creative power by which God created all the universe was through the word, was through Jesus. Only God has the power to create out of nothing, and now John attributes that same power to Christ. Now John is not the only one who makes Christ's role in the creation of the universe clear. Paul, Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 1, so We'll see the same idea expressed in Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, he writes, For by him, talking about Christ, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Paul expands our understanding of Jesus' role in creation by saying that not only was all of creation brought into existence through Jesus, through the word, but all things in the universe continue to hold together because of Jesus as well. Our continued existence is because we are being held together by the power of the word, by the power of of Christ. The author of Hebrews wrote a similar thing in Hebrews chapter 1. And in Hebrews chapter 1, in verse 2, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. The word has the power to create and sustain creation, which bears witness to his divinity. But not only does the word have the power to create and sustain creation, but the word also has the power to give life. We see this in verses 4 and 5 in John 1, when he writes, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, this life that John refers to is zoe in the Greek life. This is not just physical life, but it extends beyond physical life to eternal life that can only be found in Jesus. Jesus communicated the same truth about himself in John's gospel. In John 5, 26, he says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And in John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And John also writes in his other other epistle, 1 John 5, 11 and 12, he says, And this is the testimony 
that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. The word is the source of eternal life. Jesus is the source of eternal life, which is the light of men. Since the life in him was the light of men, people through following him obtain the light of life. The word has the power to give life, which bears witness to his divinity. Now he says also that this life, shi- this life shines into the darkness, or this light shines into the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. Darkness in this verse is everything that is at war and enmity with God. This wickedness then has not attained, seized, or understood the light. The darkness has not mastered the light. And in that, John is anticipating what he's going to expound in verses 10 and 11 when he looks at responses to the light, which we'll talk about when we get to that point. So we've seen that the word's power to create points to his divinity, that the word's power to give life points to his divinity, And then we come to verses 6 through 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. God also sent a messenger. He sent a prophet, as he said he would in the Old Testament, to proclaim to the nation of Israel that the light, that the word was coming. John the Baptist came to proclaim that the light was coming into the world. He prepared the way of the Lord so that all might believe him or have faith in Christ. And just so no one gets confused, the apostle here makes it clear that John the Baptist was not the light. John the Baptist says that about himself every time that he's asked about it in the Gospels. And we also see in John 4 that John the Baptist points to Christ. To be clear, the Apostle John, he comes back to this theme throughout his gospel. He only briefly touches here. He gives us a glimpse at evidences for or proofs that Jesus, that the preexistent word is God. But he comes back to this time and time again throughout his gospel. John uses specific miracles and discourses throughout the life of Christ to proclaim and show in different ways how Jesus is God. John lists seven specific miracles, seven discourses, seven I am statements of Christ. And this is no accident. John will take the rest of his gospel account to to show through Jesus' words and his actions that he is in fact God. So the word has the power of creation, the power of life which only God can do. God sent his messenger, John the Baptist, to proclaim that the light that the word was coming into the world. And all of these bear witness to the fact, the claim that he made in the opening statements of this gospel, that the word that Jesus is God. Well, John, now after making his claim that the word is God, after showing that there is evidence to support that claim, now turns to answer the question, how will people respond to the word? And he does that in verses 9 through 13. He writes, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, 
but of God. Right at the outset there, he says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Jesus, the true light, was coming. And John will explain this further in verses 14 through 18, but this is in reference. This is a a hint at the incarnation of the word. Yet when the word, when the true light does come, what will he do? He says he will give light to everyone. And what does he mean by that? That phrase means to shed light upon or to make visible or bring to light. This is the objective revelation that comes into the world with the incarnation of the word. Jesus is the revelation, as we said earlier. He is the self-disclosure of God. When this objective revelation comes into the world, people must respond. God's self-disclosure, his self-expression, the revealing of himself through Christ demands a response. And how will people respond? Well, John, he lays out two options for us this morning. These are the same two options as everyone. When people encounter Jesus, they can only respond in one of two ways. We see the first response in verses 10 through 11. He says, He, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. The creator of the universe was in the world, yet they didn't know him. He actually came to his own people, and they rejected him. Jesus, the preexistent word of God, who has the power of creation and is the source of all life, is rejected by men. That is one response to Christ. And as we read throughout the New Testament, we come to realize that it's actually the majority response to Jesus. Most people, most people will reject Christ. Jesus said this in his, in his conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, verses 19 through 20, Jesus says, And this is the judgment. <coughs> the light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were, were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Most people, the majority of people, when exposed to the true light, run from it because they love the darkness. They don't want their works to be exposed by the true light. They would rather live in darkness. And and Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, familiar passage for us in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. The majority of people will respond by rejecting Christ. And as they do so, they will walk in the darkness, which is a broad road that leads to eternal destruction, away from the only source of eternal life. But is that the only response to Christ? Is that the only response to Christ? Well, John answers that in verses 12 and 13. He says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I'll be clear, there is so much truth packed into these two verses. 
Remember, this is this prologue of John's is an introduction to themes he will explore and expound upon time and time again in great detail throughout the rest of his gospel. But in these two verses, John says clearly that although most will reject Christ, some will believe in his name. Some will respond to the truth of who Christ is and what he has done by repenting of their sins and placing their trust or believing in him alone. Most will reject, but some will believe. Some will believe. But this leaves a question hanging in the air. If his own people did not receive him, how can anyone see, understand, and believe in him? How can anyone receive him? You would think that if anybody would, it would have been his own people who had waited for hundreds of years for the Messiah to come, but then he comes and they wholesale reject him. And if those people rejected him, how can anyone receive him? How can anyone believe in him? How can anyone place their trust in him? Well, John answers that with a contrast. Now understand this is not a contrast ultimately between those who reject and those who receive. This is a contrast between those who reject and those who have been given the ability to believe in him. For none of us can believe in him. None of us can receive him without his work in our lives. Our blood, our will, our works cannot put us in a position where we can now receive or we can now believe in him. It is all a gift of God. We are, he, he, here G, John is referring here about the new birth. The new birth. He says those who were born. This is spiritual birth that he explores later in John chapter 3. He says who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the result of that, John references adoption. He says, being made or given the right to become children of God. By God's will, you who were far away have been brought near. You who were far away have not only been brought near, but you have been adopted into the family of God. Salvation is a sovereign work of God. All of God, none of you. You cannot save yourself. You cannot choose him. You can only believe as God has granted you the ability to believe, adopting you and bringing you into his family. Well, so far, John has made the claim that Jesus, the word, is God. He said there is evidence to this truth, and the evidence is truth is Jesus' power to create, to save, as well as the prophet of God sent to proclaim his coming. And when people are presented with the truth of Christ, they will respond in one of two ways. They will either reject him or they will put their faith, their trust in him. John doesn't stop there, however. Up to this point, he has hinted at the incarnation of the word. But now John brings the glory of Christ and his incarnation to the forefront. Really, all of John's gospel, or all of John's prologue here has been building up to this moment. John now reaches the climax of his section and discussion of the word, and he does that in verses 14 through 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is as, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. The pre-existent word who is God became flesh. He literally took flesh upon himself. Jesus Christ, one with the Father, became a man truly God and truly man. Everything that makes God who he is is found in the Son. And everything that makes us what we are as humans, except sin, is also found in the Son. John makes it abundantly clear that the Word who is truly God also became truly man. Both of these truths are crucial. Both of these truths are, cre- are key to our understanding of who, who Jesus is. We may not understand how they can both be true, but Scripture makes it clear that they are. Now to fully understand the magnitude of what is John is saying, we need to go back to the Old Testament once again. And in Exodus chapter 40, God had, er, in, in that section of Exodus, God had the Israelites build the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was a structure in which God chose to manifest his glory before the people as they traveled through the wilderness. And the central part of the tabernacle was the Holy of Holies. And not just anyone could go into this place. No one was allowed in that place except the high priest once a year on Yom Kippur to make atonement for the nation. One man, once a year, into the Holy of Holies. If we look at Exodus chapter 40, I'm going to read a a short section from that book. Exodus chapter 40, the last part in, in verses 34 through 38. It says, And the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. A visible manifestation of the glory of God traveled with the nation of Israel throughout their journeys in the wilderness. Now what is the connection with these verses in John's gospel in Exodus 40? Well, if we look at the verb in verse 14, it says dwelt, right? It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. John is the only author in the New Testament to use that word. And the root of this word means to pitch a tent or literally to tabernacle. He uses it here in his gospel, and he uses it four times in Revelation. And one of those times, I want to take a look at, one of those times is in Revelation 21, verses 1 through 3. And this is at the end of Revelation, when God establishes the new heaven and the new earth, and he brings down the new Jerusalem. And in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 3, he writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell, that's that same word, he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, 
and God himself will be with them as their God. In these verses, as well as the rest of the time John uses it in Revelation, it is always used where God's people are in his presence as God chooses to dwell with them, to pitch his tent with them, to literally tabernacle with them, revealing his glory to them. The translation which I feel more accurately captures this word in John 1.14 is, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The reason that is so amazing, the reason that is so astounding is that if we remember from Exodus, the vast majority of people in the nation of Israel did not have access to God in this way. Only one man, one day a year, and he entered into the Holy of Holies with fear and trepidation before God. And it is this word that John uses to describe what the word did when he took flesh upon himself. On a sermon, in a sermon on this section of John, Dr. MacArthur said, and I like this quote, and, we, and what was not accept, accessible to people in the Old Testament, namely the Holy of Holies, has become accessible to us in the New Covenant because the veil is down, the way is open, we come boldly into the presence of God. And as we enter the Gospel of John, we, like the priest of old on the Day of Atonement, have access to the Holy of Holies to see the glory of Christ. We need to take a moment here and wonder and marvel at what John is saying. I feel wholly inadequate to describe with words what happened at the Incarnation when the Word of God, when Jesus Christ took flesh upon himself and dwelt among us. This is the same God who created all things out of nothing. The same God who sustains all things by the power of his word. This is the same God who is the only reason that anyone in this room this morning has the ability to believe in him. This is the infinite entering into the finite. This is the eternal entering the temporal. This is the unimaginable glory and majesty and power and holiness of God voluntarily choosing to confine himself to the human limitations of time and space in which we dwell. And we have access to this revelation of the glory of the Holy of Holies through Jesus Christ. I think we are so used to the idea of Jesus Christ, truly God, truly man, that we forget just what an astounding truth it actually is. The word took flesh upon himself and tabernacled among us. Now the rest of the verses through verse 18 give us a better understanding about that glory about the glory that is revealed by the word, the glory that is revealed by Christ who came and tabernacled among us. <clears throat> and John starts by saying that we have seen his glory. We have seen his glory. He does that in the middle of verse 14. John and many others who would have read this gospel saw and experienced Christ in the flesh. They had literally seen his glory as they heard his words and saw the many signs and wonders he performed. John goes on to describe this glory. How does John describe this glory that was revealed? First of all, he says that it's glory as of the only Son from the Father. 
Glory is of the only Son from the Father. This is the same glory as the Father. All that the Father has, he shares with the Son and the Spirit. Once again, there is distinction within the Godhead. That is not a distinction of being. The glory of the Father is the same as the glory of the Son. So it's the same glory as the Father. Once again, though, it's also borne witness by John. He says this in verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out, this is he of whom I said, he who comes before me, ranks before me because he was before me. Once again, God bore witness to the revelation of his glory through the prophet John, who understood that not only was Jesus preeminent, but he also existed before John. As another reference to his preexistence. And then if we look down at verse 18, he says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Not only is this glory the same glory as the Father, but Jesus actually reveals the glory of the Father to all. Moses could only get a glimpse of God because he would have died if God had fully revealed himself to Moses. Yet in Jesus, we can clearly see the glory of the Father like no one before had ever seen. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. This is the same glory as the Father proclaimed by his witness and made known, made known in the person of Jesus Christ. So John has described this glory, but now he's going to qualify it. He does that in the middle of verse 14 and in verse 16. When he says, he says this glory is full of grace and truth. And then in verse 16, and from this fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. All receive abundant grace from God in creation, as known as common grace. But there is a special grace that is received from God by those who believe by those who are saved. The grace that you and I receive and our salvation is grace upon grace. It is grace beyond measure. It is grace beyond comprehension. This is the same glory as the Father, proclaimed by his witness, made known in the person of Christ, and experienced in salvation by those whom God abundantly, abundantly pours out his grace. And then we have verse 17. Verse 17 says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus says in verse 17 that the glory of the Father, as revealed by the Son, and experienced in salvation by those whom whom God has abundantly poured out his grace, is better than the glory that was experienced by Moses and the Israelites in the Old Testament. Now think on this. The revelation of the word of Jesus Christ is better than the glory seen as a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. Now my guess is that for most of us this morning that may sound shocking. We often think we could just see a visible manifestation of his glory. If only we could get a glimpse of God like they did in the Old Testament. If only we could experience that. And we say all of this as we hold the greater revelation of the glory of God in our own hand. As God dwelled with them in the tabernacle, they received the law. We, however, in the New Testament, receive grace and truth as God has tabernacled with us in Jesus Christ, the word of God. 
We can experience no greater glory of God than the revelation of Jesus Christ, his son, until we go to be with him in glory one day and see him face to face. We don't need to see some visible manifestation of God in our lives through a pillar of smoke or a fire. We have a more sure word in the person of Jesus Christ, the eternal word of God, who took flesh upon himself and humbled himself by tabernacling with us and revealing to us the glory of the Father. What an amazing God we serve this morning. At the beginning of the sermon, we asked the question, does it matter what we believe about Christ? I pray that here, as we near the end of our time together, that you can say with me an emphatic yes. Yes, it does matter what we believe about Christ. We cannot, we cannot have a Christ of our choosing. People want to believe in a Jesus that they are comfortable with. They want to believe in a Jesus that makes sense to them. However, the prologue to John's gospel does not leave us with that option. We must believe in Jesus as he really is, not as he would like him to be. This is true for our salvation. Yes, but it is also true for our sanctification. For many believers, we easily recreate a separation between the spiritual and secular aspects of our lives. We consign Christ only to the spiritual areas of our lives. Christ is confined to church, church activities, and church friends. We don't allow Christ to impact each and every area in which we live. And the reality is that we spend a lot more time out there in the world, at home, in our communities, at leisure activities, and at our jobs than we ever do inside a church building. The word taking flesh upon himself does not leave such a division. He, the eternal son of God, fully divine, the word of God whom all of creation was created, both seen and unseen, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. In doing so, he destroyed the supposed spiritual secular divide that we so easily create in our own hearts, in our own lives. So as we come to a close this morning, as we begin this new year, I want to challenge us all with the following. Over this next week or over a period of time, I want you to think about the different areas that make up your life. And as you do so, I want you to think of one area in which you have kept your faith separate, in which you do not allow or have not thought through how your faith in the divine word of God made flesh should change or should affect that area of your life. I don't know what that area may be for you. Maybe it is some aspect of your job. Maybe it's the actual work you do or how you do your work, how you interact with your coworkers, perhaps with customers. Maybe it is the community in which you live, whether that's places you shop, the neighborhood in which you reside. Maybe it is in your home, either by yourself or with your family. Maybe it is with extended family members, whether they live close by or far away. Maybe it is how you choose to use your leisure time. I don't know what area that may be for you, but I guarantee that you will not have to think hard to find an area or aspect of your life in which you are not intentional in how you live out your faith with how you put Christ on display in that area. So as you consider that, I want you to ask yourself the following question. What could it look like 
What could it look like for me to show Christ? Or in the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, 14 through 16, he said, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let us be intentional about how we give glory to the Father just as Christ, the Word made flesh, has revealed the glory of the Father to us. Since Jesus is God and man, we must integrate our faith with every area of our lives. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth of your word this morning. Spoken, proclaimed through this unworthy vessel, God. God, thank you for Christ. Thank you for the pre-existent word of God, who is God, truly God. Thank you for Christ, who you have given a multitude of evidences for. Thank you for Christ, who humbled himself, who took flesh upon himself, who has tabernacled among us, and who has revealed the glory of the Father to us. God, I pray that as we are exposed to that glory, all that we would be changed. God, help us. Help us by the power of your Spirit as we live intentional lives in this world that we would not let any area of our lives not be touched and affected and changed by the truth of the Word of God made flesh. May other people see Christ in us and through us as we live our lives. All for your glory, all for your name, and the advancement of your kingdom. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.